Alright. Oh, Heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, right ever present, and fill us all things, treasure blessings, and give our life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity, and save our souls a good one. Amen. Did I actually? Yes, I did turn that on. Okay. If you see me right away, I lost. <laughs> Was that a, a remembering that somebody else also? Was signed up? Are you signed up, Tim? Oh no! I'm not. Okay. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> no way! I, I love strategy games, but I never like chess. Huh? Too medieval? Uh, no. Uh, I we can put one more chair. So, I preemptively canceled last. Saturday, but Sunday, I mean catechism class because I was exhausted. I had been going from like Friday afternoon all to like nine o'clock at night, and then all day Saturday. It, it, it just didn't happen. So I do want to hit and talking about uh, the Theotokos, and specifically because we're we're still in the feast of the Dormition. Uh, the mission of the Theotokos. This is the icon of the Dormition. Uh, this is one of the feasts of the church that is not uh, do you all know where this is in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. That's right. Trick question. Yeah. <laughs> Devious, tricky, Father Daniel. Okay. <clears throat> so there is and has been uh, within the church how do I know about this? Okay. We, if you come from a Protestant background, you have a very, very strong idea of the canon of Scripture, because the entire backbone and structure of Protestantism requires a very set, this is the canon of Scripture. Luther had massive arguments with the Catholic Church uh, about whether or not um, the Maccabean, book, the books of Maccabees were in there, because there's talking about praying to the dead in there, Right? The solidity of the canon is a much later idea in the history of the church. I'm not saying it's completely slippery and whatever, and that there's you know all sorts of room. But if you look in the early first few centuries of the church, there is not an agreed upon canon of scripture. It takes a while for the church to settle in. And they did not walk around with Thomas Nelson, New King James Version, full, you know, Bible. This is obviously not a Bible, but I know it. <laughs> but you know, like, wherever, or, they, you know, you go to the hotel and you open up and there's a Gideon's Bible, right? New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, actually, the Gideon's Bible, that, like, New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs, that would be more like what the early church would have been like in the sense that. <coughs> To actually have a book, and I'm not talking about the Bible, because all Bible means is books, right? Like a book. Um, <clears throat> to have a gospel was expensive. St. John Chrysostom encourages everybody to like put their shekels aside, because we're talking about months of income in order to be able to actually have somebody, because you couldn't go Xerox it, you couldn't print on demand, right? You had to sit down have somebody sit down and go, in the beginning was the word, right? Like, So it's very expensive. So where do you hear scripture? You hear it in the church. So actually the canonical scriptures are basically what were read in church. What was acceptable and what was a part of the kerygma, which is the preaching of the gospel. 
Because if you look at the early church, was Paul, when he's talking, like I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon this morning, when Paul is talking about scriptures and things, is he talking about explicating the gospel of Matthew? It didn't exist yet. Right? I, I, I think sometimes we get so used to, we have these discrete Bibles, etc. But the early church, for hundreds of years, in the way that we even do the way that things are set up now in the Orthodox Church, what is on the altar? It's just the Gospels. It's not the epistles. The epistles, the apostolos, is actually another book. That's where the epistle reading comes from. It's literally, it's an epistle book, right? You would have had discrete, separate, uh, they have the prophetologium, based on the book of the prophets, which have been like where all the Old Testament readings from the services, that would be a separate book. We just basically print them out now. So we have discrete pieces of paper, right? We're, We're used to having books and then endless supplies of printing stuff off or something. That's not what they had. So if you were going to hear scripture, you had to go to church. And that you might have heard and was read and discussed would have been First Clement. Have you guys ever heard of First Clement? The Epistle of Barnabas? Maybe even Ignatian? There's all sorts of apostolic fathers. There's all these books that the church, we accept not as canonical things now or they're not what's read aloud in scripture uh, out in church but they are considered a part of the tradition of the church and they are seen as authoritative they don't have the same authority as like the gospel of matthew does but they are seen as authoritative because they didn't have this sense it would be like if you're coming out of here of these classes and the conversations of the church and hearing interpretation and saying i heard the apostle paul say blah 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 but it's not written in an epistle there is the whole reality of the church actually existing, commenting. I mean, people ask me all the time about commentaries for the Old Testament, and I kind of have to be like, well, there's some here or there from the fathers, but typically what was going on was oral, like, preaching. I mean, if you're looking at Chrysostom's homilies, what, what was written down and we kind of treat as, like, commentaries, it's him just preaching off the text. So there would have been these kind of classroom sessions, which were also, like, the homily, uh, when we think of classrooms, we think of discrete desks and everybody sitting down taking notes. But it would have been like this. It would have just been sitting down with the teacher and they explain the scriptures to you. That's what historically catechesis was, was basically explicating Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, like the pro- like that is what catechesis was because nobody knew it, right? Now, generally Christian, we, we, we understand the Old Testament and the relationship with the New Testament and how they're related to each other, but that was not that way in the the church. So why am I going on and on about the canon and all this stuff? Because the reality of tradition within the church is that there are certain things, the kerygma of the church was something that was out there, spoken about, and proclaimed in in the middle of the streets, right? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was born of the Virgin. You already see where the Theotokos and Mary is already kind of implicit in part of the kerygma, right? Uh, but that's what was public. That's what everybody, if they're encountering Christ and Christianity, that's what they first encounter. There was something that was internal. I, kinda, I was actually using some of this in talking. Um, Big Beard, I, can't, I don't remember his name. His John. Name? John. John, okay, the fellow who just left to go uh, for chess. Uh, he, he's got a big beard. When I first saw him, I was like, oh, somebody's visiting from another parish. <laughs> okay, but... He had asking about like how do you engage with people about things like the mother of God and all this stuff, and I was drawing on this basic distinction. 
there is a kerygma, which is like a public proclamation, and then there is an internal reality, kind of like in family life. This is maybe not the best example, but I'm going to go with it for right now. There's kind of a public face that you kind of have, or public stories and things that you face to the world, and then within the family, there's going to be like, yeah, your uncle deals with, you know, a meth addiction or something, right? Like, the mother of God is not a meth addiction, but I, I'm just saying that there's like that public thing that you proclaim, and then there's an internal reality in the church. The mother of God was one of those internal realities. In the early church, when we say catechumens depart, we really meant, right? You were escort. There was deacons, and the deacons, when they say the doors, the doors, the deacons were actually at the door, out, and they would let people in and escort people out. A lot of this is right. They were they were doorkeepers, and a lot of this is because it, you're found in the second century. They're gonna kill you, right? This is not. We don't live in 21st century North America, right? Like they were in a completely different context, and so the cat they didn't explain everything early on to catechumens. There are some who didn't learn. Uh, there's evidence in the catechesis because we have different forms of catechesis throughout a large section of you know the Mediterranean or the broader Mediterranean, where you don't learn the Our Father until you are actually in the church because you don't have access to call on him as father yet until you're baptized and chrismated and receive communion. I mean, you can tell that our father is really late in the service, right? The our father comes like right before communion because it is in the depth of the remembrance of God and being able to call on him as father, the, co- the kind of the covenant renewal of us bringing down the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to descend and transform the bread and the wine. So... The mother of God in the traditions around, there's a lot, there is devotion that goes, there's evidence of devotion to the Virgin Mary to the second century. There's already all sorts of discussions early in the fathers where they are talking about that Mary is the opposite of Eve, right? She's the fulfillment. She, instead of uh, creating deceit and basically like sidetracking Adam, she says yes instead of basically Eve's no, right? She takes the knot that Eve tied up and she undoes it. Uh, you have with her, I mean, I talked about the Ark of the Covenant briefly in the homily, but there is all sorts of echoes if you actually look closely at the Gospel of Luke and this whole uh, the encounter of um, Elizabeth, John's mom, with Mary, where Jesus is with and he's leaping within the womb and all of this it all echoes David encountering the, the Ark of the Covenant and leaping for joy. And there's, there's, I mean, literal copy and paste verses where there's a very, it's not just like, oh, this sounds like, it is an echo of this encounter. So there is built into all of the, the Marian devotion that comes in the church it is all based off Christ, right? The entire, I mean, if you even look at the icon of the Dormition of the Mother of God, who is at the center of the icon? It's Jesus. Jesus is holding, if you've ever wondered uh, who this is, that is the soul of Mary, basically, or the example, like a little itty bitty Mary. It's also, what is this the inverse of? If you just take this like that. It's just the, the, the typical mother of God icon flipped, right? Jesus is now holding his mother almost like she's a little infant, in swaddling clothes even, because she's died, right? 
the story is that she dies, and then God basically assembles all of the apostles together. He brings them from all over the world in order to come uh, to the funeral, basically, of the Mother of God. It is uh, within the tradition of the church. We don't have any relics of the Mother of God of her body because we believe that she was actually bodily we say assumption, you could say that she was assumed into heaven, that she was a first fruit of Christ's first fruit, right? That he says, Mom, I'm not going to leave you here, I'm bringing you up. So so why all, like, why the apostles all around? What, what is going on? Uh, in many ways, the mother of God stands for and is the first Christian, right? She responds to the Annunciation, I mean, she literally bears Christ within her, right? And Paul uses this metaphor all the time of, I wish that Christ was born within you, or that he would come to fruition in you, like all of this. Well, the mother of God literally, the word literally, because we all let's say literally all the time when we're just speaking. Anyways. <laughs> Mary is actually has Jesus within her, Right? Um, she is the one who says yes, and we very strongly, it wasn't just like everything was all predetermined and this is, because you have a lot of ideas in the Protestant world, I, I, I'll hear this, and I'm not trying to just dig on Protestants, it's just what it is. Even though Luther, Calvin, and all the reformers all had a devotion to the mother of God uh, and thought she was ever virgin and all of that, they did not jettison those beliefs. That is later in Protestantism that that becomes. Um, there was always uh, a devotion to the mother of God because she stands at the forefront of the Christian church. That's why she shows up in like, outside of the fact that she's at the Ascension, but she's in the middle. Or at Pentecost, she's like at the top of the semicircle of the apostles. Very often you'll have her even there because she stands out in front. She's not the head of the church, that's Jesus Christ, right? But she is the one who is the great exemplar she is the one who keeps the word of God within her and contemplates it. She is the one who stands at the cross while all the apostles run away. So she becomes, uh, I'll use Latin here, because uh, mater ecclesia, she becomes the mother of the church. She becomes, uh, she is, and she also becomes this kind of, she really is, but she's also symbolically has this weight. So she stands in the middle of the church, right? The whole church is a symbol of because she's a symbol of the church. If you just have the, an icon of the mother of God holding Jesus, she's a, Christ, she's a Christian, right? Or she's like following and holding Jesus. So she's an example to us. But she's also, in a sense, she represents a cor the corporate aspect of the church, that bridal spousal relationship uh, outside of... Let's just keep it like that, okay? <laughs> Without getting weird. Okay. Um, but... You have, there's outside, this, this icon doesn't have it because there's different depictions of this. Uh, one of the, the, the differences and the emphasis between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church is when they talk about the Assumption of Mary, they do not actually show, there's a debate about whether she died or not in the Roman circles. And for us, it's very clear that she died because she was a human. And part of our pushback against the way that the Roman Catholics teach about the Assumption is that it almost really does seem like she becomes kind of a demigod type state as opposed to like she died and then Jesus brings her up. And this, I remember when I first encountered this, I was like, this is weird. This isn't scripture. I'm like, wait a second. Uh, where's Elijah? Where's Enoch? 
That even comes up in the hymnody. So when Moses dies, Moses he very clearly dies because God doesn't let him into the promised land, right? And they, he falls dead, basically, right on the edge of the, the promised land. It's okay. You got Elijah really good last yeah. week. <laughs> well, I mean, even just doing Samuel this morning, there's stuff on me rereading it. I was just like, I don't remember these things. I remember, like, the vague outline of stuff, but yeah. going back as an adult, like, there is so much stuff going on here. Uh, Old Testament's a wild ride. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I tell everyone, like, if you're going to read the Bible, start from the front. You know, like, start from the beginning. And I would also say you need somebody to help you understand it, because if you just yes. pick it up and you just try to read it on your own, you're going to come away with some fascinating questions. Yeah. Or, like, even even the church fathers, Augustine, when he read uh, Genesis, he's just like, who are these people? <laughs> because for, in his mind, like, in the Greco-Roman mind, there is like heroes, right? Like Samuel is very much kind of this hero. Like he's this kind of, he's a prophet, he's a king, judge, king. Uh, he's also a warrior. Like he, when when Saul doesn't finish obey God, where God says wipe out all the Amalekites, yeah. And Saul doesn't actually do it. He keeps one of the kings. You know what Saul, Samuel does? He takes the sword and he executes the king that was supposed to be killed. He says, I, I love the line. This is great. Behind the Old Testament, he says. This sword that by which you made a bunch of um, what is it mothers without children that you killed a whole bunch of kids, I'm now going to basically make your mother childless. <laughs> there it is. So there is it's almost like a movie. I wish some people would make like great movies about some of this. So there's it just is. fascinating things going on because you can also see the scenes of like all this arc stuff going on this battle and then you have to zoom out and this guy's running to tell Eli anyway sorry uh, you can tell I'm enthused <laughs> but it, being able to read the Old Testament with somebody beside you to actually help you discern what is going on because otherwise you can come away and be like man God just seems like some kind of like pagan deity is like everybody else it's easy to have that concept um, especially when uh, in the same Old Testament where Saul captures these nice looking lamb and he's like hey um well someone asked if he killed everything he's like yeah that's what i'm talking about yeah that's what i'm talking about and then (laughs) he hears bleeding in the back he's like so so what is that (laughs) oh we kept these for sacrifice there's some nice looking stuff so we just kept these for sacrifice but i said they killed everything yeah he's obeyed yep so there there is with this the need to be able to help to someone come beside you uh, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Like, I don't understand what I'm reading. And the church has a way of reading this uh, that helps you to be able to understand it. Uh, that is the same with the mother of God and being able to understand uh, who she is and that we celebrate this feast of her falling asleep and translation from life. And if you go for to the hymnody, you'll see that where we contemplate all of these different aspects of her. So I mentioned the Ark this morning. In the icon, there, uh, in some of the icons, there's this guy who's reaching out to her body, to to the beer. It's not in this icon. And there's an angel there with a sword, and you can see that the guy's arm is literally cut in half. So the story is, I forget the guy's name. He was uh, Jewish, who wanted to basically cause trouble for the Christians and basically wanted to dishonor the mother of God by basically flipping her over. 
So he goes to touch and to push her off, and an angel appears and cuts his arm off. He repents, his arm's restored, it's okay. Okay, but what does that remind you of? The Ark of the Covenant, when um, I think the wheel broke, and yes. someone caught it. And he I forget his name, yeah, he tries to, it, it's just doing this, it's yeah. just shaking, and he, yeah. he, he, he yeah. doesn't want, he, I can say, I, I have this good intention, but he struck dead. Because the Ark is holy, and there is something there. So there is, in all of this, why is she holy? It wasn't just because of her merits or something like this. She's holy because what was in her womb. That's not to take away from her, because we do look at her as uh, the most virtuous, the, the one who stands ahead of all of the saints, even like she's at the head of the saints. That's why we call her um, uh, the stratego, the, um, in Greek is basically like the, the great general who stands at the head of the, uh, the saints. So it's fascinating in orthodoxy that we for at the heart of the church is the mother of God and when we talk about what it is to become Christ-like we very often refer to Marian concepts or Marian virtues of humility of obedience of treasuring like contemplation and prayer we this is why if you look at the cycle of the feast for the mother of God it all replicates the stuff that we've been talking about the spirituality stuff uh, if you want, if you wanted to dig, if you're digging in deeper into orthodoxy, because I kind of look at catechism class where I'm not going to go off and talk a whole lot about hesychasm, but we kind of hit the Jesus prayer. These are things that are, this is introduction, right? These are things that you can grow into and learn more about, but she is the exam, exemplar in all of these things. And she, in the preaching of the fathers is always put forward as the exemplar of these things. Um, I think looking at icons of the Mother of God with Jesus and the various poses and positions uh, that he can have in relation to her uh, helps us to contemplate various ways in which we need to contemplate God, that we need to uh, imitate her, uh, that there's an intimacy that is there. And I'm just, if you want to get really kind of basic, it's like, Jesus listens to his mom. <laughs> I mean, it's even in our prayers. I mean, this is, you can hear this in like apologetic circles where we're like, well, of course Jesus loves his mom, and therefore all this stuff. But like, that is, that is, we, we refer to that. It's like, because of your position as his mother, and this is an Old Testament idea. This is not, the, the, the king's mother has a spot of honor in the Old Testament. It is not something random made up. The longer that I've been around orthodoxy and gone back and read the Old Testament, I never come away going like, where do they get all this stuff? I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> These, they're just reading the Old Testament because God doesn't change. And what I mean by that is like, the Old Testament can be weird and foreign to us, right? I mean, golden tumors being sent back. I mean, uh, that's something, right? That's their world, that's what's going on. But it's basically one thing I didn't hit on because I was, I was trying to watch my time. <laughs> but the reason why, if you read through 1 Samuel, that book, Israel, they don't have weapons because they don't know how to do metallurgy. Because the Iron Age is hit. But it's the Philistines, the Canaanites, who have the iron weapons. Israel doesn't. In fact, later there's, an, there's a battle that Saul is in charge of like leading. And it said they had to go spend a bunch of money, basically, in order to get swords and spears. And so when they got to the battle, they're like, nobody had swords and spears. They still won, if I'm remembering that battle, because they lose and win and back and forth. But the whole point, it sounds like they had the Canaanites, or the, the, sorry, the Philistines, 
they're using metallurgy, the things that they have that makes them better than Israel, they have to create little hemorrhoids <laughs> out of their metal, their, this gift that they have, which is also this kind of Genesis is weird about technology, right? Like, is technology always good? Because what is the difference between Cain and Abel and then what happens to them, right? Cain's descendants, it's all about making cities and like metallurgy, like this kind of rejection of God and kind of like self that is there. So there's a tension there. It gets transformed, right? How does the whole story end? It's a glorious city in the, the book of Revelation, right? God does redeem it, just like God redeems kingship. Because right after Saul, you have, uh, sorry, with the end of Samuel, because Samuel's kids are actually, sons are not good. So the people say, we want a king, and Samuel's kind of upset that they want a king, and God says, it's okay, let them have a king, because they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. And you can tell them, you're going to get a king, and the king's going to make you all into slaves. It's much longer. It's like paragraphs. So like, he's going to take your, your daughters. He's going to take your sons and make war. He's going to take your horses. He's going to take your land. He's going to tax you. You're going to be a slave. You're going to return to Egypt, basically, right? And they're like, no, we want a king. It's like, okay, we have a king. Eventually, what does he do? He has David. He has Solomon. We call Jesus king, right? Like, he redeems this thing. So, um, you have within, knowing the Old Testament, I think is really essential. I wish that I had been taught this a little bit more when I first came to the Orthodox Church because it has made things, it's not just kind of random, some fourth century Greek thing. It's right there in, in the Old Testament. It's not that it's just things that you don't understand. It's because it's in the Old Testament already. And a lot of churches, at least the way I was growing up, the way they read the Old Testament scriptures was just kind of moralistic stories. Why is Saul bad? Or why is Eli bad? Because he cheated, right? And it's just this kind of just, more, everything was a moralistic thing. It's, it's bigger than, yes, morals are important, but it's a bigger thing. They're messing with the sacrifice. The thing I missed about Eli, it wasn't just that he showed his sons. His son, so he allowed his sons to skin the, the fat off the top. And then it says that his sons were basically fornicating in the, in the temple. And Eli then says, hey, guys, <laughs> cut it out. Don't do this. You're offending God. And, and you realize, Eli, you, you opened the door, man. Like, you, it, too, too much too late, right? Like, you should have actually fathered them back there and led the way instead of basically, here you go, right? So, all of that, let's... Does anyone have any questions about the mother of God? So I want to hit, go ahead and hit on virtues, yeah. Uh, why do we not have the immaculate conception? Let's table that for a... a <laughs> the immaculate conception is a complicated thing. The way I would basically articulate it, this is also a big deal on the internet, and lots of people arguing about this, uh... Does everyone know what the Immaculate Conception is? Yeah. Tell me what the Immaculate Conception is. Because inevitably somebody gets it wrong. Uh, from my understanding, it's that Mary was born without the original sin of ancestral guilt. Is that correct? You can say original sin, it's fine. I'm not a Latin phobe. That's okay. <laughs> um, and that was making the way uh, for Christ. Right. A lot of people, when they hear the Immaculate Conception, they think of the Incarnation, actually, like the birth of Jesus. I've heard this over and over again. It's like, no, the Immaculate Conception is about Mary. It's, 
it is about Jesus, but it is about the conception of Mary, which is the conception of Joachim and Anna coming together. And historically, in the Orthodox Church, is, it has historically been my understanding, because this gets complicated, uh, is that the Immaculate Conception or the purity of the conception of the Mother of God is about Joachim and Anna coming together in a pure union without lust and conceiving Mary. Uh, the question of whether or not she's born with original sin is not in the, in the Greek fathers. There, there's this understanding that she is broken and that she is in need of salvation. They will say that she does not sin like the way most of us sin. Uh, but that she, what happens in the Roman system, and there's Roman systems about this, is it becomes this huge kind of like calculus problem about how to take the merits of the cross and apply it because it's an eternal sacrifice, so therefore it needs it can be applied backwards to Mary so that she's born without original sin. And the Orthodox just go, this is really overly complicated for. Like she dies. This is why the death thing, right? Mm -hmm. She can't die if she doesn't if she's not born of sin. Mm -hmm. So the Orthodox Church is like, she's born and she's going to die because she's human. And that if you start going the route of the Immaculate Conception, and I think you see this in some of the piety of the Roman Church in my opinion, Mary really becomes the great here here's the here's the clever thing, the great exception instead of the great example. Because if she's removed from original sin She's almost demigod state, as opposed to like that she is born s sinful, as in she's going to die. She has her own personal holiness, but she's still of the race of Adam, and she's going to die. That is the for my uh, reflection. The immaculate conception. What happens is, is Mary is no longer human, which makes Jesus not actually human, not like the rest of us. Which means that Jesus sacrifice isn't for us because his flesh came from Mary. So if Mary isn't one of us, he's not one of us. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it has to be just wrong. It's like, it, did, does that make sense? Like, like Mary has to be a real, actual human person like every other actual human person in order for Christ to be a real, actual human person. Well, but the challenge is the Greek fathers do have that Jesus was born without sin. Because right, that's what the New Testament that, teaches. That's, that's, the only, that's the only thing is that Jesus is without sin. But that's unique to Jesus, not to Mary. So It has to do with Augustinian understandings right. uh, coming from Augustine about how original sin is handed on and, it, and down. And, and because of his fight with holiness. Yeah. We're going we're, we're, we're going <laughs> up into but, the stratosphere of the yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, it's fine. It's just, that was like, well, but I spent it, a lot of time reflecting on this because, you know, how my Catholic Catholic and half is Protestant, so this was one of those questions that I had to wrestle with for a moment. I mean, I can, I can tell, in the Roman Catholic Church, this isn't declared a dogma until really late. I can't, I think in the 1800s, if I remember correctly. Oh, at the First Vatican Council, I believe. I don't, is it at the Vatican, First Vatican Council? I don't remember, whatever it is, there's a, Aquinas didn't believe in the Macular Conception. There's a whole, it, it is way more complicated and convoluted than a lot of the other things that we talk about. So if, if somebody wants to really delve in, you can email me and I can start sending you some essays and things. It's also an area that I'm not super up on because I can't be up on, I don't have a PhD in every topic because almost all of these require like a PhD amount of research in order to really get to the bottom of things. So you had your hand up. Uh, yeah. 
No, so all of us are basically born uh, into sin. Christ is born into human nature, into our flesh, but because of who he is and his person, he uh, is not, if he had not submitted himself to die, he would not of his own accord have died because he himself was pure, right? He did not have sin. Why do we die? Sin. So we, in being born, uh, this is part of that Christ uh, and the virgin birth and all of this. He, um, being who he is and coming in the flesh, he does not uh, have the sin that we have, but he has the nature that we have. And we're again going to get, it's going to get super complicated, but the basic is Christ, this is why orthodoxy is a little bit different than a lot of, like, you have to have Jesus as a sinner and sin in the flesh, except that is exactly against what Paul says. So, Christ, and this is why it's the great divine mission, or salvation mission, that he comes down and becomes one of us, but he never sins in the midst of uh, becoming one of us, living as one of us, etc. And then he is able, therefore, to fulfill everything that Adam was supposed to in the way that we're supposed to live. He does it perfectly. So that is then, if you want to use the word applied, or we have access to the, the renewed, revived humanity through the gift of the Holy Spirit to us to be able to live in the way that Christ lived as a human. So that's part of the reason why we partake of his pure body and precious blood, is that we're literally partaking of his immaculate body, his pure blood for our sake. And we talk about it as the medicine of immortality that we need it in order for us to be able to be revived and be able to be resurrected. So it's not just an exchange of ideas. It really is that we are participating in him and receiving him into our body to change us. Which is usually typically very different than most Protestant ideas. And basically, you call on the name of the Lord and you say, Jesus, you're the son of God, and then you get saved. And that's good. That, 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 I mean, you're supposed to get better. And this is where you get to the virtues aspect of things, right? Where it can, a lot of this is, it has to be got, and then you have huge debates in Protestant circles about what exactly is sanctification. You have like justification where you've been made right in the eyes of God in a kind of juridical fashion. He has declared you are, you are good because I'm looking at Jesus and not at you. This is Luther's language, right? Like uh, we are snow covered piles of dung is the language of Luther. He, he had a way with words. Uh, and so we're still internally kind of, blech, but God doesn't look at us. This is this language of like we're being clothed in Christ. He just sees Jesus when he looks at us. Uh, and the Orthodox Church would push back and be like, no, Christ actually came in order to kill that death that's in us, to like actually take the dung and make it into something else. So the transformation is, uh, you don't have this kind of rigid, there's justification and then there's sanctification, but justification occurs but we also talk about sanctification as a part, as an ongoing outgrowth of the justification that we have been made right in the eyes of God. And that means, therefore, he is bringing us, growing within us the fruit of the spirit that we actually become virtuous. The aim is not the virtues in themselves. The aim is to become Christ-like, but he is 
the cross of Christ, St. Mark the ascetic says, the cross of Christ contains all of the virtues because that is where all the virtues are. So um, the mother of God had all of the virtues, like she displayed the virtues of God because we believe that she was in union with God, that she displayed in her life like all of the saints, she displayed the fruit of the spirit. She had, if you want to do the theological virtues, she had true faith in God. She hoped in God. I mean, this comes out in the Magnificat, which was what the echo of Hannah's prayer this morning, right? In the homily, that is what the Magnificat is based off of, is the song of Hannah. Uh, and then she loved. Faith, hope, and love is the great three theological virtues. Uh, they kind of encapsulate from faith, hope, and love come the rest of the virtues uh, that we that Paul talks about as fruit of the Holy Spirit. So this is what it means to follow Christ is not just to call on his name, but it's also to actually within our own bodies receive him and then start living and acting like him. And that is what sanctification is. That is what salvation is. It's not just a once for all like declaration. It is a declaration and then a life moving towards God. That's a very different perspective based on, well, compared to other... What you've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Like, very, very opposite, um, actually. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is. <laughs> you're not, so it's something like, you're not saved by your works, right? Yeah. Uh, you, no, the Orthodox Church would agree. Like, you are not saved by your works. But, you, faith works. I mean, this is James too. This is why Luther had a huge, like, call out the epistle straw, like pulling his hair out because he had developed this kind of system of his reading of Romans. And then you get to something like the epistle of James and James doesn't have the same language as, as Romans. So instead of going back like, maybe I don't understand Romans, he just forges ahead. If you go and read Chrysostom as opposed to like Luther or Calvin on Romans, you're going to come away with a very different idea about what is going on in the book of Romans. Then. So it's very hard sometimes because uh, I've encountered this with certain folks who are especially formed in reformed circles they come to the book of Romans and have a, a whole preset ideas about this is what the God's justice is this is what justification by faith is and all this stuff and you read Chrysostom's homilies on this stuff and he talks about justification by faith and the justification by faith is why is Abraham justified because he believed God could raise his son from the dead that's why Isaac we're talking about here right that, that Abraham left his people. That Abraham believed God could bring life out of death. That is what faith, that is what justifying faith is. It's not the belief in the doctrine, the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith is what justifies you, because that's what often it boils down to. Anyways, I'm starting to go too deep into random things. Was there any questions about the section on virtues? Anyone get to read the section on virtues? No, I'm still looking for the doctrine and scripture. <laughs> doctrine and scripture. Do you have any questions from there? Well, I do have a question about Mary if we're still on sure. that topic. Um, maybe it's more of a practical question rather than like a theological question. Sure. So, growing up in the Protestant church, Mary just is not a thing, right? Like, um... Quite literally, she's almost right. You yeah. don't talk about her except at the nativity, pretty much. Um, and so, I guess I'm wondering, like, as someone entering into orthodoxy, and I've seen this with Catholic friends, and also I guess with orthodox people, just like the level of devotion and love that they have for 
Mary. Um, well, like, I have an icon of Mary, but I just, like, I have no, no emotional connection, no, like, internal devotion. It's just, like, not, I can kind of, like, concede intellectually to the theology, but it doesn't translate into any sort of, like, devotion. Like. And I don't know if that, is that problematic? You just, <laughs> or that's just what it is, and maybe in time it changes, I'm not sure. The latter. I think it's, it is something that develops over time, and as you, because there's the intellectual ascent, and then there's the actually discovering her as your own mother, and being able to go to her and pray to her, which is really powerful. I mean, this is part of the reason why, if you see in the church, there's like, if you go to a lot of churches, you're going to see, you're always going to see Jesus, the mother of God, and John the Baptist. That's like the triptych, right? They're always going to be around. And then whoever the patron of the saint is, and then inevitably you're going to see St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is going to be somewhere. Uh, you probably see St. John Chrysostom or St. Basil the Great. You're going to see particular St. St. George is probably going to be somewhere, or St. Demetrios if you're in a Greek church, uh, because they're basically awesome warrior saints. And so, especially young boys really like <laughs> these saints. Uh, there's also kind of the chivalric, like, knight aspect to them, of kind of like man having to actually grow up and kill the demons in his life, right? Uh, so the mother of God, th what I'm saying is like St. Nicholas, uh, the reason why there's such a devotion to him, he was not a great theologian like St. Athanasius or St. John Chrysostom or St. Gregory the Theologian. He was just an awesome bishop. He was a great shepherd of his flock. And over time, he really listens to prayers. And so there's a whole lot of churches and a whole like a great devotion to him that comes from the experience of the, the people of God that's not just because of some kind of intellectual thing that has gone. So uh, I think some of it is just orthodoxy itself. I know you've been around for a few years, but it, as you can probably attest to, it takes marinating in for in order to kind of feel like you're getting what's going on. Because on one level, you can all kind of get what's going on. This is church, right? Like... The priest is doing the thing with the Eucharist and all that. And then there's layers of it that come out over time that there are things that I, it took 10 years for me to actually feel like I was fully plugged in all the way and knowing what's going on. And still there's things that kind of blow me away or I, I connect to or certain saints that just kind of go over and then I come back around to a year or two later and, and connect to them in a particular way because of the situation. Same, like St. Nectarios. I've never really had much issues with other clergy, but St. Nectarios is a great intercessor for clergy who are having issues with other clergy because he got pushed out, basically, and was vilified and was basically mm, slandered and had to live with that. So that was a really long answer, too. Yes, it's just going to take some time to, to warm up to the Mother of God, and it's okay. The service on last Monday night, the vigil, the vigil, and that, that was that was for what you're talking about was helpful for me. Just the, the homily that went with and everything that goes into that kind of does a really good job of making it real for for you, uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, this is why I talk about coming to the services not just Sunday morning because the services themselves help shape your mind, your imagination, your experience of things. Because otherwise, it, it can just become a, a intellectual thing. I know that you come to other services. I'm not. 
saying anything, but there's still who go through certain feasts of the Mother of God and the aspects of it that just jump out at me that for whatever reason I had not even I've been doing it for years at this point it just comes out at me in a new way was there any questions you had from the doctrine and scripture? Uh, not that jump to mind right okay. now one question that did just come to mind um, so it's very common for when you read kind of like testimonies both within like Protestantism and, and Orthodoxy, it seems that many people within Catholicism and Orthodoxy have had like visitations of Mary, right? That's not an uncommon thing for Mary to appear to people. Um, I have heard so many testimonies as a Protestant and people who angels appeared to them and Jesus appeared to them, but never have I ever heard a Protestant testimony where Mary appeared to someone. And I guess I wonder, like, if it if something is true, is it? I mean, is it just that people wouldn't accept it because it's not part of their theology? And yeah, I think there's a bias. There's a working bias that's going on there. But I also know of Protestants who have had Mary appear to them and they become Orthodox or Catholic. So maybe you don't. Hear it <laughs> so, anymore. I mean, I've heard stories of uh, this one person. There was I forget. It was a big concert. And for whatever reason, you know, this gigantic speaker, some speaker system fell on them and, like, crushed them. They're, they're, they're going to die. But while they were underneath these gigantic speakers on them, this, it, she had no idea who this was. But this, she find out later, is a higher monk. So a, a Greek Orthodox priest monk appeared to her and basically said everything's going to be okay. And then she came out and she recovered for a long time. And I forget exactly how she finally saw a picture of him. Because she's trying to figure out who was this that, like, appeared to me. And it was actually not somebody who had passed already, but it was Elder Ben Leonos, uh, who was actually our archbishop's um, abbot uh, when he was still, because Elder Ben Leonos has now passed. But um, he had been praying at that time and basically encountered her through prayer and like basically kept her from dying she later she's now an abbess and her name as abbess emiliana <laughs> so she took on his uh his patron uh name but there is this she was not orthodox at all she encountered and if i remember this story correctly this is probably don't quote me on this but i'm pretty sure she was actually the aunt of the hansen boys hansen like Mbop, you're from somewhere else. You guys know who Hanson is? This is a pop band from the 90s. So this is probably before all of you guys, because you guys are young. Mbop, da 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 randomly and I think it's because of their aunt who then became orthodox and etc etc one of them is actually a deacon now Zach I don't remember but yeah weird pop culture reference there but it does actually apply to what's going on but so uh, I've never had the mother of God appear to me I've had St. Basil give me a stern talking to before but I have not she has not appeared to me doesn't mean I still don't pray to her all the time so I think some of it is just has to do with our life dynamics and things. I mean, I've had St. Maximus, the confessor, I was baptized Maximus. Uh, he never appeared to me, like, 
think Basil in a dream basically told me that I need to be more patient with my kids and was like <laughs> this is on the eve of his feast so uh, but St. Maximus right before I proposed to Chelsea uh, I was at monastery St. Sophronius monastery in Essex and um, we're waiting for the cab the taxi mate to get me and I forgot the shampoo and I was like I do not want to have to go buy another thing of shampoo on this trip because I just throw it away anyways right I have to do it twice so I'm going back into the place uh, basically the dormitory where I've been staying and this monk said Father Melchizedek has been looking for you Father Melchizedek is a priest who done his PhD work on Maximus Confessor we had talked a bunch he said he wants to see you so I was able to find a connect with him and he said I have a relic with St. Maximus Confessor if you would like to venerate so I was able to venerate my patron saint, like on the trip we're going to propose to Chelsea. Fast forward, a very good friend of mine, Father Matthew Baker, had died in a car accident on the Sunday of Orthodoxy, and like two weeks before we've been talking about seminary and etc. And on that trip going, which is basically when I was talking with the priest about going to seminary, he had a relic of St. Maximus, the confessor, that I was able to venerate. So it was like, marriage and then deciding to go to seminary my patient saint like kind of presented himself and said here I am like <laughs> in his relics he didn't appear to me or something like that but he like made himself present to me in his relics because if you're going to have a relic of St. Maximus Confessor you have to go to Georgia and I mean Georgia as in like across the pond and another pond <laughs> right like because that's where he died in exile so that to me is like there's the pre there's all sorts of ways or like I've seen uh, a weeping icon and nobody thought it was a big deal. It was in during services, standing there. And I could see on the deacon's door very often uh, we have saints. We very often have angels and they hold little orbs, which is kind of a symbol of the world, kind of like God's providence, the angel. And that orb, I could just see it was like wet and it was just like oil was just like running. I could see it from like standing 40 feet away I could just see it going down and I was like is that they're like oh yeah it happens sometimes and everybody else was just kind of like you know this is what happens Let's, that that icon is a myrrh bearing you know, like myrrh gushing icon and that's what it is if that had been in another I, I'm just gonna I, I've talked about it with a friend of mine who had been a charismatic if that had been in a charismatic church that would have been on billboards yeah there would have been, like, that minister would have been set for life. Like, yeah, it would have, I've, I've never heard anything, a, a peep from that parish beyond they know in that parish that that icon from time to time, like, has myrrh that comes from it miraculously. And is like, very fragrant. Like, you can smell it. So, that, that to me, like, the, God's presence shows up in ways that are things that we may not, or they're kind of like, we know, like there's kind of a pattern to the Orthodox Church. Um, Wonder-working icons, the ways that God is present to us. In the same way, I think like the Ark of the Covenant we're reading about today, like God is present through things, right? Like his, he's the one who's between the cherubim. That was the encounter with God for Israel was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, so, the mother of God is present to us and wonder-working icons and we have feast days dedicated to these wonder-working icons we remember the things that she's done uh, mediated through that particular icon 
So we're not that weird, and though I know it can seem that weird, but if you read the Old Testament, you see a whole, like, our weirdness has at least got roots in other weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't just make it up, like, that's, and that's, it's not pagan. I mean, I think a lot of people, they like, it's pagan. I'm like, go read the Old Testament. Yeah, if um, you think that that's pagan, then I, like, maybe you're in the wrong religion, <laughs> because the Old Testament, like, Judaism, historic Judaism, is weird compared to what you think. When I came here last year... I was like, all right, this is weird, but I've seen this before in the Old Testament somewhere. So it's not that weird. Right. So it's not pagan, but it's a different kind of Christianity that I'm not accustomed to. Yeah. But I've read it before, or at least I've experienced it in the Old Testament by reading it. But I've never experienced this thing before. It's yeah. Like, it's, like, it's like a different level of stuff. Right. So what, I mean, I was thinking this last night and we can close on this unless somebody has a question, but like re, I was rereading through like all day yesterday, I was just reading the life of Samuel basically because it's today and I was like, I'm going to preach on Samuel because I want to, because I want to do the Old Testament. And just reading, I was just like, when I was a Protestant, the way that I would have read this is basically like, kind of like Eli should have paid attention and like disciplined his kids uh better or like better better father and i made that point but that's a fair point that's a good point but what do you do with all of the arc stuff how what 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 in what world does that actually translate to anything now for you no it's just something that was weird that happened in israel <laughs> because everything in your church has nothing to do with that stuff, unless you're charismatic and then i mean and it, like we're, we're talking about a different world like they actually see it's just not, I, I think it, they just don't have guardrails. They don't have the tradition to help them to be able to filter through egos and other things are trying to live off of that stuff, right? Uh, which is fascinating because it's even in the story about Eli and Hophni and Phineas. Like, the problem is, I mean, why did Hophni and Phineas start fornicating? In the, because they were already yeah. fattening themselves up. They were already carnal. They were, they, it already would go that direction. So there was nothing to stop them. So... And I can only say those things because of the experience of the actual Orthodox spiritual tradition where I can read and see, oh, like, why does it say randomly at the end, Eli was fat and when he fell over, right? That's because it's a commentary on him. It's not just like body shaming him or so fat shaming him, right? It, it, it's, it's literally talking about the, the glory of God and the glory of man and Eli gloried in himself, not in God, right? There's... That's why I love the story. If you get into these stories, you can see the multifaceted. It's like a movie as opposed to kind of like, you should be, you know, chased. You should be like fasting. You should be like, instead of like, I don't want to be like Eli. <laughs> like, I don't want to be like Poppy and Phineas. I, Samuel seems like a much better example for me to follow, right? They're great stories. Kids too. I did not know what the tumorous thing was until I started digging into it a little bit more. I was like, oh, tumors, okay, whatever. And then I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, no thanks. <laughs> and it's funny, too. I mean, just for, the story is just funny. They literally... And it, it, it also hints that, you know, God has a, a sense of humor. Because, I mean, like, all right, having, so. having the idol prostrate in front of you, that's, that's, that's one thing, but getting rid of his hand and his head? He's taken to another level. Like, not only have I owned you, I've really owned you. <laughs> I'm going to run circles around you. And you're going to have not great feelings down under. <laughs> All right, any other questions? All right, let's close with prayer. 
Lord, now let us love thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. From mine eyes I see the salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So next week, uh, let me see real quick. I know we're starting to get towards the end of this series of catechesis. Um, I'll, I'll still go through virtues, but we're going to hit prayer, fasting, almsgiving, sexuality, marriage, and family. I know that's a lot, but I'll weave in virtues through the next things. That's what I'll probably end up doing. So we only have four classes left for this section of catechesis. Do you have an extra copy of the schedule so I can make sure my reading is... Nope. Yeah, I know I'm redoing it, but, you know... <laughs> I've left this.